When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. So, hi everyone. Today I have Dr. Michael Meyer, a board certified pulmonologist and critical care physician, to talk about some important critical care topics for medical students. A short bio for Dr. Meyer. He went to undergrad at UC Davis, and then he went to my alma mater, actually, Torah University, California, College of Osteopathic Medicine, for med school before crossing the country to complete his internal medicine residency at the Lewis Gale Hospital Montgomery in Blacksburg, Virginia. After his internal medicine residency, he completed a fellowship in pulmonology and critical care medicine at the Corpus Christi Medical Center in Corpus Christi, Texas. He now works for Sutter Health at two hospitals in the Bay Area. So how are you doing, Dr. Minier? Great. Uh, thanks for having me here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. So I figured we could start with some career questions, um, basically sure. talking about why, uh, why you decided to go into the field of pulmonology and critical care. Was there anything specific that first drew you to the field? Well, to be honest with you, when I was a med student, I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do. I thought I might like to do internal medicine. And then um, as I did different rotations, that's when I started thinking I wanted to do everything. And then as time went on more and more, I started to think, well, I really like this particular thing. And um, the way that the lifestyle for certain doctors seemed really cool. And I also met some pulmonary critical care docs who were our attendings at the time. And I thought, wow, those guys were so cool and I'd love to be like them someday. And so that's kind of why. Um, but I think it's more of just seeing what sounds good to you, but always keep in mind what your lifestyle will be like when you're choosing, because you don't want to pick something where you're going to hate. Um, for example, if you are hating the idea of getting up in the middle of the night and delivering a baby, you may not, even if you enjoy OBGYN stuff, you may not want to become an OBGYN or you want to make sure you get shift work type work. Um, but yeah, what, what other, what questions do you guys have for me? Yeah, well, first I'll say I, I agree completely. I think lifestyle is incredibly important to think about because, you know, I, I think it's something medical students don't think about, like call schedules and shift work and the, the difference between the two when you like look at different specialties. Um, but can we take a second to kind of talk about the pathway to pulmonary uh, and critical care? Of because, course. Um, from what I've seen, you can kind of specialize in one or the other or both. And it's kind of interesting, whereas if you wanted to do cardiology, you just do a straight cardiology program. It's not really combined with another specialty. Sure. So, um, just, um, so for a lot of fellowships, you can go a different routes. Um, so when it comes to, let's talk about um, starting with critical care. 
So critical care has a couple of different routes you can go through to it. One is you could do internal medicine and become, and then do fellowship in critical care. The other is you could technically do family practice and then do a critical care um, fellowship after that. But unfortunately, currently we don't have a um, board uh, created for family practice um, uh, trained um, critical care. There may be one that may come up soon, um, but currently technically you wouldn't be board certified because there's no board test um, for family practice critical care. Um, you could also do anesthesia critical care. And I believe you can even do uh, surgery and go into critical care. As far as pulmonary goes, you can only go through internal medicine. Um, now, what are some other specialties that are combined with critical care where you could do combined um, critical care in that? You can do, do combined uh, nephrology and critical care. Um, there's combined, I believe, even ID critical care, but that's a little more rare. Um, I believe Davis is one of the places that has a critical care ID program or did at one point. Um, and then uh, other than that, I think that kind of sums up the big things. But even within critical care, you can do actually further training. You can actually do an extra year to do ECMO uh, critical care. And you can also do an extra, extra training or an extra year to do neurocritical care. Um, so that's even further sub-specializing for those of you who love to be in school forever. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's good to know. I didn't know you could uh, do critical care along with ID and nephrology. That's, uh, it's good to know that that's a route if you're interested in it. If you had to choose one thing or a few things, what is the most exciting or your favorite aspect of your field? So I would say actually uh, what I love is actually, um, well, one of the things I love is I actually, um, I'm lucky enough to have students who rotate with me. And so I do love uh, being a preceptor for students because um, we have students that rotate with us at Sutter at Summit Hospital and the ICU. Um, that part's actually one of my favorite parts. Uh, the other part is I like working with uh, nurses and um, we're kind of like a team. And so I, I love where I work. Um, the nice thing is everybody I work with is really pleasant to work with. And, um, it, and sometimes it's kind of fun and exciting when, especially with critical care, you get to make changes um, in someone's life. So most people who go into the ICU are people who are unfortunately dying. And that's why they've ended up in the ICU. And so when they every time someone survives and comes out of the ICU, that's a win. And so in a way, it's very, it, it can feel very rewarding. Although sometimes we also have situations where people pass away. Um, and you have to realize that unfortunately, everyone that comes to the ICU, the idea is if you didn't intervene in their care, they would have died. And so, uh, but not every time are we able to help everyone that comes through. Um, and there's different ways of helping someone. You may not be able to prolong their life, but you can always make sure that what is left of their life, they're not suffering or they're not in pain or things like that. And so there's uh, different aspects to it. But the nice thing about critical care is it's very exciting. The part of pulmonary that I like is it's very much more of intellectual. You think about different weird cases where people can't come in with shortness of breath 
or different types of weird stuff that they find on CT scans, and you try to figure out what's going on. So for me, the nice, the reason why I picked pulmonary critical care was because I both got the excitement of being in the ICU and having patients that are that sick and um, doing something that really made a difference in their lives and in their families' lives. And then the pulmonary side, it allows me to do intellectual stuff. And the nice thing about pulmonary practice is you, you become friends with the people who are your patients. So as time goes on, in critical care, you're only seeing them for a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks. In pulmonary, you get to know those people for years. They come and see you and they become your friends. And so it's almost like you're taking care of your friends or your family. And so when they call you up and say, oh, no, I've gotten sick and I'm starting to having, have an asthma attack or something like that, it's kind of like your friend is calling to ask you for help. And so it, it feels nice to be able to help them out and to do something for them. Um, I hope that kind of answers your question. No, it does. That was a great answer. And I appreciate the sentiment. I, I kind of feel like the same way. Uh, I feel the same way about pulmonary critical care, and I think it's one of the things that kind of draws me to the field. So I'm definitely excited to explore it more through my training. Um, so one kind of follow-up question with that, uh, if a student is interested in pulmonary and critical care, what kind of resources would you recommend to them to learn more about the field or you know, get their foot in the door to find out more about it? So one of the things I would recommend is if any of you guys are, even as a, so one of the things that helped me a lot when I was going through med school and then through residency was, um, so MedStudy and MIGSAP have a lot of, um, and I'm, I'm in no means in any way affiliated with MIGSAP or MedStudy, but when I was a med student and when I was a resident, um, I used to use their, um, they had some audio files and they had some videos, DVDs, and they also had these books that were on different subjects. And so every time I was on a particular rotation, I would try to, whenever I had some downtime, I would try to go through the book that had to do with that specialty. And that helps not just with pulmonary or um, when you do your boards and when you're doing your in-service exam, which a lot of people kind of just don't care about their in-service exam, but it does help if you do well on it. So if you're applying for fellowship, if you, you're not required to disclose your in-service exams, but if you do well on them, I think you should. Um, so a lot of times, if you're doing a good job of um, learning the topics that are related to the rotations that you're on, then you'll do pretty well on your in-service exam too. Um, and the nice thing is um, that tells the whichever fellowship that you're applying to or interviewing with that you've actually tried really hard to um, prepare for your boards and everything else, and you actually are very well educated, um, and you know the topics that you need to know. Um, as far as things to prepare you for going into pulmonary critical care or any kind of fellowship, I think the most important thing is. First off, make sure that whatever lifestyle that physicians that are practicing that are living is something that you're okay with. Because uh, the other thing is it would really suck if you go into a particular um, field and the options that are available of what life would look like, whether if it's shift work or 
um, a more traditional model, um, similar to private practice type stuff, where you're going in and out of the hospital or in and out of the office, or other types of models that those are things you're okay with doing for the rest of your life. Um, but mostly, I think the things that they're going to be looking at when you're applying for fellowship is just that you're interested, you want to work hard, and that you're someone they'd enjoy working with. So when you also go for your interviews for fellowship and residency, keep that in mind that they've already decided they'd like to, you sound like someone they'd like to work with, but they want to make sure that you're not like psychotic or um, or something crazy. And so just be yourself. Don't pretend to, during interviews, don't try to pretend to say things that you think they want to hear. Just be yourself. Tell them honestly how you feel. And then if you like something, read up on it. The reason why is because then the next time you run across it and you guys are, let's say, doing a case with your attending and you happen to know a ton about that topic, they're going to be impressed. They're going to notice. And that is also going to be reflected in any letters they write for you because they're going to be like, wow, this medical student was so awesome. They went off and read about this topic on their own and then came and taught, taught us all about it. And so that's really cool. But I think, in all honesty, that's all the advice I could possibly give on preparation. Some of the other stuff just depends on where you go for fellowship or residency. And so, yeah. Yeah, that is amazing advice. I'm definitely going to be taking some of it to heart, um, especially in the midst of uh, interviewing for residency programs right now. So I totally understand what you're saying. Um, at this point, unless you have anything else to add it, for career advice or board specific advice, I would just like to move on to the questions I wanted to sure. ask you. The board yeah. questions. So we can start with our question number one. So we have a 55 year old man who is being evaluated in the emergency department for chest pain and shortness of breath. A chest x-ray shows pulmonary edema and an EKG shows SD segment elevation and leads B1 to B3. The patient's blood pressure starts to drop despite 500 milliliters of normal saline. Bedside echocardiogram reveals a severely reduced ejection fraction. Which of the following is the next best step in management? Is it A, two liters of normal saline, B, a dobutamine drip, C, milrinone orally, or D, push dose phenylephrine? Out of these four options, I'm sure if you saw this patient in front of you, you might have some different choices. But out of these four options, um, which one do you think is best, Dr. Minier? Well, the answer is B, dobutamine drip. Um, and part of it is we need to go back to the stem as far as what's going on with this patient. First off, initially, you, you know, immediately off the bat, they're talking about having chest pain and shortness of breath. And you know that you're having a picture of pulmonary edema, which means that your heart is actually failing. You're having fluid backing up into the lungs. Um, you're, and to further back that up, you have EKG changes, which are showing SD segment uh, elevations in the right side of the heart. Now, when you're looking at the, by the way, the leads on uh, EKG, um, V1 through V3 is more, especially V1, V2 is more of the right side of the heart and the posterior aspect of the heart. Whereas V5, V6 is going to be more the left side. And you know that you're going to be talking about more 
the septal area when you're talking about V3, V4. Um, in this particular case, um, the notable thing is also that we're talking about SD segment elevations. Now, one thing I do want to do a quick offshoot on is anytime you're seeing ST depressions in V1 um, in particular, you need to always keep in the back of your mind that that's the back part of the heart and the right side of the heart, and that sometimes an ST elevation, uh, so getting an ST depression on a left-sided EKG is the equivalent of you having ST elevations. In this case, we don't know if what we're looking at is a right-sided um, MI or what it is that we're looking at, but that's one of the concerns. With right-sided MIs, one of the big things you want to remember is that they're very preload dependent. And that's probably why they did a test um, dose of IV fluids to see if it would help things or make things worse. Because um, one of the things is if you're dealing with a right-sided MI, if you give nitrates, you'll actually cause the patient to, to crash. And so because they're very preload dependent. And so it's nice that they tried this, but I also the fact that we had pulmonary edema tells you that you already had some right-sided heart failure or you have at least some, some heart failure that's taking place. Now, this, is, this could be left-sided or right-sided. Now, um, and in reality, it would be more so that you're having backing up because of um, not having good forward flow. Um, so... In this case, you already know you tried fluids, and just by a rule of thumb, if you're trying volume and it does not help your pressures, it usually means that we need to start thinking about things like pressors. And so a lot of times we either do, there's different ways for us to figure out what a person's um, volume status is, um, especially when we're deciding about whether to use pressors or not, because unless you filled up the tank, if you give pressors, it may not work quite as well. And so one of the first things we always do is we make sure that their volume status is eubulimic or it's in a way that uh, pressors would work well. And so you can either do a test dose of saline, 500 cc's or 250 cc's, or you can do other methods. Um, we have other stuff um, that also, like for example, straight leg raises where we look at um, the pressures and see if they improve when you raise the legs up because in it, essentially what you're doing is you're giving preload um, for a brief moment. And if you especially have an art line or th something where it quickly can give you a blood pressure, and if the blood pressure improves with volume, then you know you're dealing with a situation where you need to give more fluid. But in a case where things are getting worse despite you giving fluids and you already have a picture where it looks like you're already in heart failure, then you're looking at using a presser. Now, the next question is, which presser would you want to use? This is a heart attack. So that means that you're having heart failure. So you want something that's going to give you ionotropy or something that's going to push your heart to beat more or harder. Um, out of the choices that we have, both dibutamine and milirinone would give you ionotropy. But the problem is milirinone is taken orally, which means it takes 30 minutes for it to get absorbed. By the time you start having an effect from that, the person would probably be dead already, <laughs> and so, or their pressures would be quite low. So the, the thought process would be when you want something to quickly happen, when it's a situation where it's a life and death situation, usually the correct choice on any kind of board review, or in general, is to try to give it IV. And so that's one of the things that lets you also rule out milrinone 
as being a likely choice. Now, phenylephrine is also a presser, but phenylephrine is primarily used for when you have peripheral um, issues where you have distributive type shocks. And distributive shock type shocks are where you're not getting enough volume coming back to the heart for it to push it forward. In this case, it's our pump that's failing. And so with our pump failing, um, unfortunately, phenylephrine is actually a negative ionotrope and a negative chronotrope. Its side effect is it actually causes, um, so it, it, the problem with it being a negative ionotrope is it's actually going to make your heart pump nat as well. But also what it's doing is by being an alpha agonist, it's also going to make it harder for your heart to pump forward. So it's increasing the afterload on the heart. So that's why you would not want to be using phenylephrine. And so the correct choice in this case would be dibutamine. Um, now, why would you not give two liters of normal saline? Because you already gave 500 cc's and it did not help. If anything, it may have made things worse. And so I think the only correct obvious choice in that scenario would be dibutamine drug. Yeah, uh, I mean, spot on from my point of view, obviously. Uh, I agree completely. Um, so based on this question, I wanted to talk about a couple other things. So we kind of talked about distributive and cardiogenic shock. Um, what are the other major types of shock that we should be thinking so, about when we're addressing these types of patients? Yes. So... In general, there's a couple of major types of shock, by the way. Um, distributive shock can actually be divided up into a couple of different kinds of distributive shock. There's neurogenic shock, septic shock, and anaphylactic shock. Each of those, and technically also hypovolemic, is sort of like a distributive shock in that you're losing volume, and you're, but it's because someone bled out or had low volume status. And so each of these is treated differently. And then in this particular problem, we have cardiogenic shock, which is where we need to get our pump to pump better. So talking about each of these different categories, what are some of the main things you would wanna know about these categories, especially for boards? So for cardiogenic shock, generally we're, we're talking about using ionotropes. What are some of our pressors that are ionotropes? Some of them, Dibutamine would be one of our drugs of choice. Dibutamine is a beta agonist. It's a beta one and a beta two. So it would do, give you both ionotropy, meaning that it causes your heart to beat harder, um, but it also has chronotropy, which is where it makes your heart beat faster. So if you're also having cardiogenic shock due to arrhythmias like bradycardia or a failure of uh, your heart to beat fast enough, you can use that chronotropy. Um, so what are some of the choices that we have that can help with cardiogenic shock? Dobutamine, dopamine, epinephrine. Um, those are some of the main ones that we commonly use. Um, now, what about for hypovolemic shock? Usually it's more of a volume status issue. It's either someone's bleeding out because of trauma, they had too little um, intake or too much loss of volume like diarrhea, vomiting, things like that. In those types of situations, it's generally more of a trying to give the patient back volume as quickly as possible. What are the ways we do that? We do that primarily with, um, with more of uh, saline or LR, depending on the type of 
um, thing that we're dealing with and what our electrolytes are looking like. And we're giving volume back quickly. And if it's bleeding and it's blood loss, then we're giving lots of blood products. And so, and that's where we also can get into other topics like uh, massive blood transfusions and things like that. Now, the next category, anaphylactic shock, the big thing you want to remember is that epi is your go-to for that one. Because with anaphylaxis and allergic reactions, we're talking about epinephrine as your main presser and your main thing that you're giving. You're also giving steroids and you're giving um, antihistamines. Uh, you're giving um, uh, things like uh, Benadryl or things like that sometimes with it. But the most important thing for boards to remember is epinephrine for anaphylactic type shock. And you want to stop the offending. You don't want to keep giving the person whatever they had a reaction to. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the next one, which is septic shock, um, some of the things that are notable to mention, uh, septic shock, the go-to presser of choice is going to be um, levofed. Uh, that's the one that is recommended by a surviving sepsis campaign, and it seems to have the best outcomes data. The other thing that also is important for us to talk about is that there was a recent study also looking at saline versus LR for bolusing, and there seemed to be some signal towards using uh, lactated ringers more so for bolusing for septic shock, um, which is interesting. Um, now, when are, what are times when you wouldn't want to be doing that? Someone who's in liver failure, because uh, where is lactic acid uh, change from lactic acid to, um, to other stuff? It's in your liver. And so if your liver is completely failing, then you probably don't want to be using bolusing with LR. Or if they're, and some people are hesitant to use LR if someone's lactic acid is very high. Um, we don't have enough data right now on whether or not if it's a good or bad idea to use LR in someone who already has a high lactic acid. Um, so, um, but that's, those are some of the big takeaways. And then within septic shock, by the way, when lactic, just for a side note, um, if someone's not okay enough with just levofed, then the next steps are we look at vasopressin um, and adding it on as 0.04 units. And we also start thinking about if we've reached two pressors and we're thinking about going on a third presser, at that point, we're also looking at could this be a issue with... Um, um, adrenal insufficiency or relative adrenal insufficiency. And so based on the surviving sepsis campaign recommendations, usually this is the time when we look at using 50 milligrams Q6 of solumedrol. Uh, I'm sorry, hydrocortisone, uh, not solumedrol. Uh, so you want to use solucortef. Um, as, so 50 milligrams IV Q6 hours um, for um, an adjunct both to try to see if we can get the, um, the mineralocorticoid effect to help with pre the presser stuff. But also, there's some thought that there may be some sensitization of the receptors when you're using co combination of vasopressin and um, steroids with the uh, levofed that you're already on. And then the next step usually is based on whether if you're looking at someone who's tachycardic or not, and you want to make sure that you've volume resuscitated them properly. Now, what's another type of shock that's left over is neurogenic. Uh, it's usually having to do with strokes and uh, things like that. Um, and that's, a, I think that one, they won't really uh, go into as much detail on board, especially not uh, 
um, boards for internal medicine or things like yeah. that. Yeah. So I think that should kind of summarize most of what you want to know as an introduction, and we can always go into it more in depth later on down the line. Yeah, no, that was definitely a great review of uh, the types of shock and, and how to approach them for treatment. The thing to keep in mind is that someone who has cardiogenic shock, like in this question, if you only focus on pressors that are going to make your periphery constrict, you're going to increase the afterload and you're going to make things worse. The other thing to keep in mind is occasionally you can also have a combination of some cardiogenic shock with distributive shock. Um, but that's just a FYI, so that if you do have someone who is on uh, multiple pressors and their pressures are dropping and the pressors aren't working as well, sometimes you need to think about, well, could they also have some other thing going on, like an underlying heart issue or things like that? Mm. Um, but that's pretty much it. What would be our next question? So for our second question, we have a 52-year-old man who's brought to the emergency department because of a two-day history of severe progressive shortness of breath associated with a chronic cough, a worsening of his chronic cough. He has been treated for the past six weeks with erythromycin after being diagnosed with pneumonia. He has smoked one pack of cigarettes daily for 20 years. On arrival, he is diaphoretic and in severe respiratory distress. His temperature is 100.6 degrees Fahrenheit. His pulse is 100 per minute. Respirations are 36 per minute and shallow, while his blood pressure is 70 over 50. He has perioral cyanosis as well as crackles and wheezing throughout his lung field. While his blood is being drawn, he stops breathing. He is intubated and mechanically ventilated at a rate of 14 and a positive end expiratory pressure of five. His arterial blood, blood gas on an FiO2 of 1.0 shows a pH of 7.35, a PCO2 of 42, and a PO2 of 55. Which of the following is the next best step in management? Is it A, continuing his mechanical ventilation in the current setting? B, administering dexamethasone? C, decreasing his respiratory rate of the ventilator, or D, increasing the positive and expiratory pressure. And I know there are a lot of numbers in that, so feel free to ask me to repeat any of them if you don't have it in front of you, Dr. Minnie. Oh, uh, thankfully, actually, I have the question in front of me. Um, the, so the big thing to take away from this is a lot of times, a lot of these questions have really long stems, and the thing you want to do is kind of focus in on what is it that they're kind of wanting you to do. And this one's asking for what is the best next best step for management. And the options it's giving you is playing around with the ventilator uh, versus administering dexamethasone. The question is, do we need to play around with the ventilator? Now, some of the things to remember is that this gentleman who's uh, 52 years old is coming in with severe shortness of breath, hypoxic respiratory failure, and it looks like they are also in shock. Now, after they intubated this patient, they actually got an ABG on him. And so I think the place to focus on is actually, based on this ABG, are there changes that need to be made to the ventilator? So first off, the first thing we always look at is the pH. Uh, so in this case, the pH is 7.35, which means that we're neither alkalemic nor acidemic. So that means that 
it looks like it sounds like we're as far as um um acidemia and alkalemia goes we're normal right now and we're fine which also means that when i'm looking through the rest of it my pco2 is about 42 which is acceptable um the only part that and what's normal usually for pco2 that you're expecting is going to be 40 to 45 now it's a if it's a co2 retainer the reason why i was looking at the ph first was that in someone who retains co2 chronically because of COPD or other things, if their CO2 has been running, let's say, in the 50s chronically or 60s chronically, then when you look at the pH, the pH should be 7.35 or 7.4 because it's already compensated for by their kidneys. And so when they're at their baseline, whatever CO2 that their body is used to, um, their pH will be normal. Um, so that means that right now, just looking at that alone, I know for a fact that I don't need to make any changes in respiratory rate or tidal volume. Because the two things that I play around with in order to help with ventilation or blowing off of CO2 is your PCO, I'm sorry, was your respiratory rate and your tidal volume. And that's what's yeah. going to change things. And just to keep in mind, um, what are some of the things that govern that? It has to do with how much, how big that tidal volume is. Is the patient a patient that's an ARDS patient? Because those patients, with based on ARDS net trial, um, and also in most patients nowadays, we try to use a lower volume strategy, which is where we look at six to eight. And there's even some studies that are suggesting, especially in ECMO patients and ARDS, um, that we may want to even shoot for four to six uh, milliliters per kilogram of ideal and this is ideal body weight by the way which you have to calculate using their height um so please do not use their actual weight because you'll blow up their their lungs um yeah. if they're a bit more on the obese side so um the next part of it is then we see that the po2 is 55 that's problematic because what is our goal for po2 we want between 60 and 80 now, depending on if, if this is a patient who's post-cardiac arrest or if it's a patient that had a stroke or had an MI, we also go a little higher than just 60 of PO2 because 60 of PO2 is 90% FIO2, um, I'm sorry, SpO2. So what that means is um, either way, right now with a PO2 of 55, our problem is that we're not oxygenating as well as we want to. So that off the bat tells me that there is a place where I do need to make a change on the ventilator. So that means A, which says continue current uh, mechanical ventilator settings is actually incorrect because there is a change that we do need to make on the ventilator. So immediately off the bat, A is wrong. One of the other things you want to know, by the way, about dexamethasone is it takes two to three hours for it to kick in. It's about two hours before it starts kicking in. So it's less common that that's going to be your choice on a critical care type of board question, um, unless it's something where they're saying overall, what do you want to do about something and they're needing steroids? Usually it's, it's probably more of something they're trying to throw you off a bit. Um, but we'll come back to that one and we'll see why they might be suggesting that. Um, the nice thing about dexamethasone is it has both mineral, mineralocorticoid, properties as well as group um, 
um, glucocorticoid properties. And so it is a, it works for both scenarios. Now, the next um, option is decreased respiratory rate. In this case, we know that the pH was perfect as is. So the question is, why would we need to decrease the respiratory rate? We don't. Um, we don't need to do that at all because our PCO2 is fine. Now, by the way, when we're looking at tidal volume and respiratory rate, um, the biggest thing is when we're looking at the tidal volume, we want it to be between six and eight, but we also look at something called a plateau pressure to find out whether or not if that tidal volume is too big. So if we were dealing with a case where we needed to adjust for the PCO2, um, a lot of times those are some of the things we would take into consideration when we're deciding whether or not if we're going to play around with the respiratory rate versus the tidal volume. In this particular question, we don't need to make any changes in the respiratory rate. So C is wrong. So that leaves us with D, and it's suggesting that we increase the PEEP. Um, so technically we're left still with B and D because dexamethasone is still not completely rolled out. But in all honesty, dexamethasone, the question is what would that help with? In this scenario, let's say we were dealing with whether if it was a COPD exacerbation or a um, or if we were dealing with something where we're needing to use steroids. Steroids are going to take a couple of hours to make any difference. And sure, it may make your oxygenation over time become better if you're treating the underlying issue. But right now, what you need to do is you need to focus on the fact that your current oxygenation is really bad and we need to fix it. And so the only option that gives us that op opportunity is increasing the PEEP. Now, one thing to mention also, because our blood pressure in this patient is low, is that whenever you increase the PEEP, it will automatically make your blood pressure also drop because you're decreasing both preload and you're increasing afterload a little bit. And so just keep that in mind whenever you're playing around with PEEP. A lot of times you want to start, if somebody's blood pressure is low and it's due to volume status where you want to start bolusing them before you start going up on the peep just for clinical practice um are there any other questions that you guys have that are related to this specifically to this question no but i wanted to take a second to kind of talk about sure. the black box of medicine for medical students the ventilator and just sure. try and discuss like the uh basic settings that we should be familiar with when we walk into an ICU. So we kind of have an idea of what we're looking at. Yes. So I'm going to start off by first, first and foremost, the two big things that you want to know is how do you make your oxygenation better and how do you make your carbon dioxide blowing off better? So for carbon dioxide, it's your tidal volume and your, um, your, and your respiratory rate. Your tidal volume, your um, picking a first guessing point or a range to pick your first tidal volume on based on what is their um, ideal body weight multiplied by six to eight milliliters per kilogram, especially if they're an ARDS type patient. Um, and then from there, a half an hour or an hour later, you're getting an ABG and based on that, making adjustments. And for that, um, you're looking at both how your um, plateau pressures are and some of the other stuff. Now, uh, some of the other stuff we need to touch on is for oxygenation, you have two things called PEEP and FiO2. Your 
FiO2, the idea is that you're building up a whole bunch of oxygen behind a membrane that is, for some reason, having a little more difficulty having oxygen go across. And so you're hoping that by increasing the amount of a concentration of oxygen, you're driving more in. The PEEP, on the other hand, the main reason for using it is to cause recruiting. That's the main thing we go for. But we also get some distension of the alveoli. That also helps a little with oxygenation, but it's, it's actually not what we're going for. We're going for recruitment of new units. Um, but that's to summarize what you play around with for oxygenation and carbon dioxide. Now let's talk a little bit about ventilator settings uh, and modes. So modes, the two big modes, now there's a lot of underlying modes that exist, but the main major ones that you want to be familiar with are essentially the old school, what we used to call uh, pressure control and volume control. Those are the ideas, the concepts that will help you understand the nuances of the newer modes that exist. But in reality, for you guys, what they really want you to know is what is a volume control mode and what is a pressure control mode. The name itself tells you what you're controlling and what's, what you're focusing on. So in a volume control mode, you're controlling and dialing in a certain amount of volume, and every single breath, you're going to give that amount of volume. Uh, that means that you'll use whatever pressure it takes to deliver it. At least in the old days, that's how it was. Now, there's newer modes that do take into consideration pressure some, but the way the easiest way for you guys to remember it is that when we're talking volume control, the main thing you're focusing on is you're dialing in the volume and it's delivering that, that breath no matter how much and that amount of volume, no matter how much pressure it takes, which can be dangerous because you can cause barotrauma and um, things like that. Now, there's also something called pressure control. Pressure control, you're dialing in a certain amount of pressure per breath, and that pressure is helping push the air in. But the problem is you're not guaranteeing how much of a breath is going in. Sometimes if the person is working well with the ventilator, you'll get a bigger breath. And sometimes when it works, they work against it or changes happen within the lungs, you'll give smaller, you'll deliver smaller volumes. And so that's the disadvantage of pressure control. Nowadays, we seem to use more so of volume control modes. So you'll see more of volume control being used. And one of the names that's synonymous with volume control is something called assist control. And so essentially, whenever you hear that, AC or assist control, just think of it as a volume control mode. And most patients you're going to see in the ICU are going to be on volume control modes. The only times that we really use... Uh, per se, pressure control isolated modes is more so it's a pulmonologist that's doing it. It's much more rare. Um, and then there's modes that are crossovers like pressure regulated volume control, which is also known as PRVC, but it's really truly a volume control mode, but you're, um, it's a newer, just so you guys have heard of it and you're not like, what is this? Uh, my mind is being blown. Why does this also have pressure in it? Uh, the idea is it's technically a volume control mode, but you are dialing in some pressure so it has a parameter so that you don't go over a certain amount of pressure when you are trying to deliver that breath. But um, that's the best way to simplify it. Um, those are the main ones to remember. 
Um, the other thing you also want to be familiar with is something called pressure support. In the case of volume control and pressure control, when you're saying control, you're dialing in a certain number of respiratory rates. As a, so the person can take extra breaths, um, at least in the newer modes like SS control, which is the newer mode of volume control. Um, but you know that they're going to get a certain number of breaths at least per minute. There is something else called a, sh called a um, pressure support mode, or some, some people also call it a CPAP. Uh, mode only because a lot of times we also use PEEP with it and it's essentially where every time the patient themselves has to trigger the breath you don't have an automatic backup rate that kicks in and when the person starts taking the breath that's when the machine delivers a certain amount of pressure for them to overcome the smaller diameter of the ET tube that they're breathing through the reason why we do that is because anytime we make the tube that you're breathing through smaller, as the radius gets smaller, it, it actually exponentially changes. It's a square type of change to how, your, how much your resistance is and how much more pressure you need to overcome that resistance and get that breath. Generally, most of the time we use um, a pressure support of five and we use a PEEP of five. And that's usually how we do our pressure support mode. And that's part of the next part of what we may want to talk about, which is weaning. Yes. And, so, <laughs> and so weaning trials, uh, we have two types of weaning trials. One is the pressure support or CPAP type trials, which are the most commonly used ones. The reason for that is because while it itself, the mode of pressure support itself doesn't have a backup rate, the ventilator does have a built-in, because it's still on and still monitoring the patient if the patient doesn't take a breath for a certain amount of time it will switch on the whatever mode that the patient was on before they got switched to pressure support which means that if they were on let's say assist control or volume control before they got switched on to the, to the pressure support and they go for more than let's say 40 seconds of not breathing or a minute of not breathing it'll automatically start giving breaths so the patient won't just die, um, yeah. which, is, which is nice because it means that um, staff don't have to stay in the room with them. The other advantage to it and having the machine on is that it can measure how many times the patient is breathing and um, how big those breaths are, which gets us to the next topic, which is... Um, rapid shallow breathing indexes, which is our only measurement that has actually been studied that can be a predictor for whether or not someone will be successful coming off of the ventilator. Um, so rapid shallow breathing index is essentially how fast it's respiratory rate over tidal volume. And the way that one of my med students kind of taught me how to remember this as a mnemonic is, so you have to respirate over the wave so you have to breathe over the wave otherwise you're going to drown you're you won't be able to so that's how you can remember the because on boards they will love to ask you or give you tidal volumes and a respiratory rate and ask you can you extubate this patient or how likely is this patient to be extubatable and so you need to remember that it's respiratory rate over tidal volume in liters 
So that means that when they tell you 450 or 500 milliliters, you need to put 0.5 or 0.45 underneath. And so that's, so whatever rate it is, you're dividing it by that decimal point. Um, so, and um, from what I recall, if the number that you get for rapid shallow breathing index is below 105, then that means that that patient is highly likely to be extubatable. Now, what if they're higher than 105? Could they still be extubated? Yes, it's possible, but it's more risky. It's more likely that they will fail. And so generally, we tend to not extubate patients when they're above, when their RSVI is higher than 105. The other way to also remember it is that how do we breathe normally? We take slow, deep breaths. So what you're looking for, if you're not remembering the equation on the test, is that if they're giving you slow, deep breaths, that's someone who can breathe on their own. If somebody's breathing fast and shallow, that's not good. That means they're going to run into trouble. Because one of the automatic uh, indications for someone failing extubation is if they're breathing more than 20 times per minute. Um, and so if they're tachypneic, that can be an indication to actually uh, reintubate someone. Now, so we talked a little bit about so pressure support trial. And pressure support trial, so you have this shallow breathing index that you can measure because you have the tidal volume and you have the respiratory rate. And so that gives you an extra thing to look at um, when you're deciding whether or not if someone can be extubated. Now, what is, what is the, the other second mode that we can use to do um, testing for whether or not if someone can be extubated? It's something, well, there's two other modes, actually, technically. One is called the T-piece trial, which the T-piece trial, you're essentially taking the ET tube and connecting it to a, you're leaving one side of it open and the machine is actually turned onto a mode where it's technically off and it's just continuously blowing air through. And so there's a certain fraction of oxygen that's being blown through. The patient has to draw the air in and overcome the resistance of the tube themselves. But it also means that whatever breath they're taking is no longer a positive pressure breath, it's a negative pressure breath. So that means that if there are still fluid overloaded, they're more likely to be able to flood their lungs while they're still intubated. So that way you know not to extubate them. And also it's harder for them to pass that test. Uh, when we're doing a T-piece trial, the main thing that we look at is vitals. We're looking at whether or not if the heart rate is elevated, is the blood pressure abnormal, is um, the saturation okay. And so if those things look okay and the patient's not going apneic, then the patient, and you also get an ABG. So after about half an hour to an hour of a patient being on a T-piece or, or them being on a pressure support trial, we usually get an ABG. Now on that ABG, what we're looking for is we want to see that the pH looks normal, PCO2 looks like it's baseline for them. And as you guys remember, for someone who's a CO2 retainer, how do you know it's baseline CO2 for them? Their pH is going to be normal. And then their PO2 needs to look okay. If their PO2 is low, despite them being on 50% or 50 FiO2, or maybe even 60%, then you probably don't want to extubate that person because you may have difficulty oxygenating them. And the underlying issue may not be well enough yet. 
The next part of it is something called, um, there's a mode that ha is, has highly gone out of favor that some cardiothoracic surgeons and some surgeons still sometimes use it, uh, which is uh, a mode that's a combination of um, kind of like assist control being combined with pressure support. Um, it's called SIMV. SIMV it has a certain number of breaths that they um, dial in, and they slowly come down on what the backup rate is, hoping that the patient will come off of the ventilator. But it turns out when they studied it, it actually takes patients longer to get extubated on that type of mode, and it actually uh, ends up being that they actually do a little worse. Um, so it's actually better for you to do isolated trials with um, either a pressure support or a T-piece trial, and then after an hour or so or however long you're doing the test, to switch them back onto the um, backup mode if they're failing the test. Um, but that kind of summarizes some of the things you would want to know about those. The, the other one, the idea is that you're just going to cut down on the rate until they're no longer, until it resembles essentially a shallow breathing index. I'm sorry a pressure support trial. And then at that point, you do the same thing as you would with a pressure support trial, hoping that the patient is going to pass the test, but they don't always pass. And so that kind of concludes everything you would, for the most part, want to know about um, general stuff about the ventilator, about weaning trials. Now, just a quick brief thing about extubations. So big things that you want to make sure of is the underlying issue needs to be better. If the reason for intubation was neurologic issues, the neurologic status needs to be better. The GCS needs to be improved. If it was because of pneumonia and hypoxic respiratory failure, if it's because of the pneumonia, the pneumonia needs to be better. So you should not be, the secretions need to be reduced. So if it's moderate or more, then that's too much secretions. So if you're having a suction of patient more often than every six hours, then that means that's a patient you shouldn't be extubating yet, especially if it's lots and lots of thick secretions still coming out. Mm -hmm. Now, moderate and less, moderate is your gray zone. But if, it's, if you're suctioning them less often than every six and there's not a lot coming up, then that person's pneumonia might be well enough for them to be able to be extubated. In the case of hypoxic respiratory failure from CHF, the reason why sometimes a TBS trial may be more helpful than a CPAP trial is that a CPAP trial or a pressure support trial still is positive pressure ventilation. So that means that the patient won't uh, flood their lungs as easily. But if you do a TBS trial, because it's negative ventilation, you can actually flood your lungs. And so after about a half an hour to an hour, the patient's sats suddenly drop. And if that's happening, then you know that you should not extubate this patient. They're still volume overloaded. Yes. But that's kind of summarizing some of the things to also keep in mind for extubation. And with that question, we will end the podcast, Dr. Minier. I do have many more topics we can cover, so we can plan on having you back on to discuss those. Yeah, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do this with you. Um, it's a really cool idea, so I really appreciate it. And once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Minier for coming on the podcast, and I hope to have him back on soon. Thank you everyone else for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions, please email the Inside the Boards podcast team.